Section 53 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jean Christophe, Volume 1 by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Revolt 2, Part 9. He borrowed more and more books from the Reinhardt's library. There were all sorts of books in it. Christophe devoured them all. He wanted so much to love the country of Corinne and the unknown young woman. He had so much enthusiasm to get rid of that he found a use for it in his reading. Even in second-rate works there were sentences and pages which had the effect on him of a gust of fresh air. He exaggerated the effect, especially when he was talking to Frau Reinhardt, who always went a little better than he. Although she was as ignorant as a fish, she delighted to contrast French and German culture, and to decry the German to the advantage of the French, just to annoy her husband, and to avenge herself for the boredom she had to suffer in the little town. Reinhardt was really amused. Notwithstanding his learning, he had stopped short at the ideas he had learned at school. To him the French were a clever people, skilled in practical things, amiable, talkative, but frivolous, susceptible, and boastful, incapable of being serious, or sincere, or of feeling strongly, a people without music, without philosophy, without poetry, except for l'art poétique, Béranger and François Copie, a people of pathos, much gesticulation, exaggerated speech, and pornography. There were not words strong enough for the denunciation of Latin immorality, and for want of a better he always came back to frivolity, which for him, as for the majority of his compatriots, had a particularly unpleasant meaning, and he would end with the usual couplet in praise of the noble German people, the moral people, by that, Herder has said, it is distinguished from all other nations, the faithful people, Troyes folk, Troy, meaning everything, sincere, faithful, loyal, and upright, the people par excellence, as Fichte says, German force, the symbol of justice and truth, German thought, the German gemut, the German language, the only original language, the only language that, like the race itself, has preserved its purity, German women, German wine, German song, Germany, Germany, above everything in the world. Christophe would protest. Frau Reinhardt would cry out. They would all shout. They did not get on the less for it. They knew quite well that they were all three good Germans. Christophe used often to go and talk, dine, and walk with his new friends. Lily Reinhardt made much of him, and used to cook dainty suppers for him. She was delighted to have the excuse for satisfying her own greediness. She paid him all sorts of sentimental and culinary attentions. For Christophe's birthday she made a cake, on which were twenty candles, and, in the middle, a little wax figure in Greek costume, which was supposed to represent Iphigenia holding a bouquet. Christophe, who was profoundly German in spite of himself, was touched by these rather blunt and not very refined marks of true affection. The excellent Reinhardts found other more subtle ways of showing their real friendship. On his wife's instigation, Reinhardt, who could hardly read a note of music, 
had bought twenty copies of Christoph's Leader, the first to leave the publisher's shop. He had sent them to different parts of Germany to university acquaintances. He had also sent a certain number to the libraries of Leipzig and Berlin, with which he had dealings through his class books. For the moment, at least, their touching enterprise, of which Christophe knew nothing, bore no fruit. The leader which had been scattered broadcast seemed to miss fire. Nobody talked of them, and the Reinhardts, who were hurt by this indifference, were glad they had not told Christophe about what they had done, for it would have given him more pain than consolation. But in truth nothing is lost, as so often appears in life. No effort is in vain. For years nothing happens. Then one day it appears that your idea has made its way. It was impossible to be sure that Christophe's leader had not reached the hearts of a few good people buried in the country, who were too timid or too tired to tell him so. One person wrote to him, Two or three months after the Reinhardts had sent them, a letter came for Christophe. It was warm, ceremonious, enthusiastic, old-fashioned in form, and came from a little town in Thuringia, and was signed Universität Musikdirektor Professor Dr. Peter Schultz. It was a great joy for Christophe, and even greater for the Reinhardts, when at their house he opened the letter, which he had left lying in his pocket for two days. They read it together. Reinhardt made signs to his wife which Christophe did not notice. He looked radiant, until suddenly Reinhardt saw his face grow gloomy, and he stopped dead in the middle of his reading. "'Well, why do you stop?' he asked. They used the familiar do. Christophe flung the letter on the table angrily. "'No, it is too much,' he said. "'What is?' "'Read.' He turned away and went and sulked in a corner. Reinhardt and his wife read the letter, and could find in it only fervent admiration. "'I don't see,' he said in astonishment. "'You don't see? You don't see?' cried Christophe, taking the letter and thrusting it in his face. "'Can't you read? Don't you see that he is a Brahmin?' And then Reinhardt noticed that in one sentence the Universität's music director compared Christophe's leader with those of Brahms. Christophe moaned. A friend! I have found a friend at last, and I have hardly found him when I have lost him. The comparison revolted him. If they had let him, he would have replied with a stupid letter, or perhaps, upon reflection, he would have thought himself very prudent and generous in not replying at all. Fortunately, the Reinhardts were amused by his ill-humor, and kept him from committing any further absurdity. They succeeded in making him write a letter of thanks. But the letter, written reluctantly, was cold and constrained. The enthusiasm of Peter Schultz was not shaken by it. He sent two or three more letters brimming over with affection. Christophe was not a good correspondent, and although he was a little reconciled to his unknown friend by the sincerity and real sympathy which he could feel behind his words, he let the correspondence drop. Schultz wrote no more. Christophe never thought about him. He now saw the Reinhardts every day, and frequently several times a day. They spent almost all the evenings together. After spending the day alone in concentration, he had a physical need of talking, of saying everything that was in his mind, even if he were not understood, and of laughing with or without reason, 
of expanding and stretching himself. He played for them. Having no other means of showing his gratitude, he would sit at the piano and play for hours together. Frau Reinhardt was no musician, and she had difficulty in keeping herself from yawning. But she sympathized with Christoph and pretended to be interested in everything he played. Reinhardt was not much more of a musician than his wife, but was sometimes touched, quite materially, by certain pieces of music, certain passages, certain bars, and then he would be violently moved, sometimes even to tears, and that seemed silly to him. The rest of the time he felt nothing. It was just music to him. That was the general rule. He was never moved except by the least good passages of a composition, absolutely insignificant passages. Both of them persuaded themselves that they understood Christophe, and Christophe tried to pretend that it was so. Every now and then he would be seized by a wicked desire to make fun of them. He would lay traps for them and play things without any meaning, inapt potpourri, and he would let them think that he had composed them. Then, when they had admired it, he would tell them what it was. Then they would grow wary, and when Christophe played them a piece with an air of mystery, they would imagine that he was trying to catch them again, and they would criticize it. Christophe would let them go on and back them up, and argue that such music was worthless, and then he would break out, "'Rascals, you are right. It is my own.' He would be as happy as a boy at having taken them in, Frau Reinhardt would be cross and come and give him a little slap, but he would laugh so good-humouredly that they would laugh with him. They did not pretend to be infallible, and as they had no leg to stand on, Lily Reinhardt would criticise everything, and her husband would praise everything, and so they were certain that one or other of them would always be in agreement with Christoph. For the rest it was not so much the musician that attracted them in Christoph as the crack-brained boy, with his affectionate ways and true reality of life. The ill that they had heard spoken of him had rather disposed them in his favor. Like him, they were rather oppressed by the atmosphere of the little town. Like him, they were frank, they judged for themselves, and they regarded him as a great baby, not very clever in the ways of life, and the victim of his own frankness. Christophe was not under many illusions concerning his new friends, and it made him sad to think that they did not understand the depths of his character, and that they would never understand it. But he was so much deprived of friendship, and he stood in such sore need of it, that he was infinitely grateful to them for wanting to like him a little. He had learned wisdom in his experiences of the last year. He no longer thought he had the right to be overwise. Two years earlier he would not have been so patient. He remembered with amusement and remorse his severe judgment of the honest and tiresome oilers. Alas, how wisdom had grown in him! He sighed a little. A secret voice whispered, Yes, but for how long? That made him smile and consoled him a little. What would he not have given to have a friend, one friend who would understand him and share his soul? But although he was still young, he had enough experience of the world to know that his desire was one of those which are most difficult to realize in life, and that he could not hope to be happier than the majority of the true artists who had gone before him. He had learned the histories of some of them. 
Certain books, borrowed from the Reinhardts, had told him about the terrible trials through which the German musicians of the seventeenth century had passed, and the calmness and resolution with which one of these great souls, the greatest of all, the heroic Schutz, had striven, as unshakably he went on his way in the midst of wars and burning towns, and provinces ravaged by the plague, with his country invaded, trampled underfoot by the hordes of all Europe, and, worst of all, broken, worn out, degraded by misfortune, making no fight, indifferent to everything, longing only for rest, he thought, with such an example what right has any man to complain? They had no audience, they had no future, they wrote for themselves and God. What they wrote one day would perhaps be destroyed by the next, and yet they went on writing, and they were not sad. Nothing made them lose their intrepidity, their joviality. They were satisfied with their song. They asked nothing of life but to live, to earn their daily bread, to express their ideas, and to find a few honest men, simple, true, not artists, who no doubt did not understand them, but had confidence in them, and won their confidence in return. How dared he have demanded more than they? There is a minimum of happiness which it is permitted to demand, but no man has the right to more. It rests with a man's self to gain the surplus of happiness, not with others. Such thoughts brought him new serenity, and he loved his good friends the Reinhardts the more for them. He had no idea that even this affection was to be denied him. He reckoned without the malevolence of small towns. They are tenacious in their spite, all the more tenacious, because their spite is aimless. A healthy hatred which knows what it wants is appeased when it has achieved its end, but men who are mischievous from boredom never lay down their arms, for they are always bored. Christophe was a natural prey for their want of occupation. He was beaten without a doubt, but he was bold enough not to seem crushed. He did not bother anybody, but then he did not bother about anybody. He asked nothing. They were impotent against him. He was happy with his new friends and indifferent to anything that was said or thought of him. That was intolerable. Frau Reinhardt roused even more irritation. Her open friendship with Christophe in the face of the whole town seemed, like his attitude, to be a defiance of public opinion. But the good Lily Reinhardt defied nothing and nobody. She had no thought to provoke others. She did what she thought fit, without asking anybody else's advice. That was the worst provocation. All their doings were watched. They had no idea of it. He was extravagant, she scatterbrained, and both even wanting in prudence when they went out together, or even at home in the evening, when they leaned over the balcony talking and laughing. They drifted innocently into a familiarity of speech and manner, which could easily supply food for calumny. One morning Christophe received an anonymous letter. He was accused in basely insulting terms of being Frau Reinhardt's lover. His arms fell by his sides. He had never had the least thought of love or even of flirtation with her. He was too honest. He had a puritanical horror of adultery. The very idea of such a dirty sharing gave him a physical and moral feeling of nausea. To take the wife of a friend would have been a crime in his eyes, and Lily Reinhardt would have been the last person in the world with whom he could have been tempted to commit such an offense. 
The poor woman was not beautiful, and he would not have had even the excuse of passion. He went to his friends ashamed and embarrassed. They also were embarrassed. Each of them had received a similar letter, but they had not dared to tell each other, and all three of them were on their guard and watched each other and dared not move or speak, and they just talked nonsense. If Lily Reinhardt's natural carelessness took the ascendant for a moment, or if she began to laugh and talk wildly, suddenly a look from her husband or Christophe would stop her dead. The letter would cross her mind. She would stop in the middle of a familiar gesture and grow uneasy. Christophe and Reinhardt were in the same plight, and each of them was thinking, Do the others know? However, they said nothing to each other, and tried to go on as though nothing had happened. But the anonymous letters went on, growing more and more insulting and dirty. They were plunged into a condition of depression and intolerable shame. They hid themselves when they received the letters, and had not the strength to burn them unopened. They opened them with trembling hands, and as they unfolded the letters their hearts would sink, and when they read what they feared to read, with some new variation on the same theme, the injurious and ignoble inventions of a mind bent on causing a hurt, they wept in silence. They racked their brains to discover who the wretch might be who so persistently persecuted them. One day Frau Reinhardt, at the end of her letter, confessed the persecution of which she was the victim to her husband, and with tears in his eyes he confessed that he was suffering in the same way. Should they mention it to Christophe? They dared not, but they had to warn him to make him be cautious. At the first words that Frau Reinhardt said to him, with a blush, she saw to her horror that Christophe had also received letters. Such utter malignance appalled them. Frau Reinhardt had no doubt that the whole town was in the secret. Instead of helping each other, they only undermined each other's fortitude. They did not know what to do. Christophe talked of breaking somebody's head. But whose? And besides, that would be to justify the calumny. Inform the police of the letters? That would make their insinuations public. Pretend to ignore them? It was no longer possible. Their friendly relations were now disturbed. It was useless for Reinhardt to have absolute faith in the honesty of his wife and Christophe. He suspected them in spite of himself. He felt that his suspicions were shameful and absurd, and tried hard not to pay any heed to them, and to leave Christophe and his wife alone together. But he suffered, and his wife saw that he was suffering. It was even worse for her. She had never thought of flirting with Christophe, any more than he had thought of it with her. The calumnious letters brought her imperceptibly to the ridiculous idea that, after all, Christophe was perhaps in love with her, and although he was never anywhere near showing any such feeling for her, she thought she must defend herself, not by referring directly to it, but by clumsy precautions, which Christophe did not understand at first, though, when he did understand, he was beside himself. It was so stupid that it made him laugh and cry at the same time. He in love with the honest little woman, kind enough as she was, but plain and common, and to think that she should believe it, and that he could not deny it, and tell her and her husband, Come, there is no danger, be calm. But no, he could not offend these good people, and besides, he was beginning to think that if she held out against being loved by him, it was because she was secretly on the point of loving him. 
the anonymous letters had had the fine result of having given him so foolish and fantastic an idea. The situation had become at once so painful and so silly that it was impossible for this to go on. Besides, Lily Reinhardt, who, in spite of her brave words, had no strength of character, lost her head in the face of the dumb hostility of the little town. They made shamefaced excuses for not meeting. Frau Reinhardt was unwell. Reinhardt was busy. They were going away for a few days. Clumsy lies which were always unmasked by chance, which seemed to take a malicious pleasure in doing so. Christoph was more frank and said, "'Let us part, my friends. We are not strong enough.' The Reinhardts wept, but they were happier when the breach was made. The town had its triumph. This time Christoph was quite alone. It had robbed him of his last breath of air. The affection, however humble, without which no heart can live. End of section 53